Hello, and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I'm Al Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. Today, we're talking to Dr. Zachary Palmer. He's at University of Texas A&M at Commerce, and he's one of my good friends from grad school. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on. We're talking today about the connection between the far right and bronies. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. I need to, um, before all the uh, the Aggies get pissed at you, I need to say it's uh, Texas A&M University at mm. Commerce. This is why we usually have him do the intros, because I always do some kind of slight error that um, sends us spiraling uh, in the comments. Speaking of comments, thank you to everyone who's been liking, subscribing, leaving reviews. Um, reviews really, really help us with the algorithm. So whatever podcast app you're listening to us on, uh, be sure to, to leave us a review, even if it's not... <laughs> even if it's not... Even if it includes constructive criticism, I am very strong and able to take criticism. We're going to get better microphones soon. We really are. We, we have heard you. Uh, we know that you are struggling to hear us. We are going to invest in some microphones. So we are really excited to talk about this. Uh, when we recorded the episode, I think it was much more lighthearted, mm -hmm. uh, talking about this connection between this kind of obscure subculture and, the, and QAnon specifically. Uh, but since we recorded, there actually was a shooting in Indianapolis where the perpetrator was a member of far right groups and was also a brony. So this is it, it's now, I think, a little bit more grim and more timely. We are really excited to share this with you. But before we get into maybe the more grim topics, let's talk about something that actually ended up kind of delightful. Yeah, let's talk about some cookies. So I had seen on TikTok a creator who made, um, you can get those tubes of sugar cookies that have a picture inside. Like you, you slice the dough and there's like a little pumpkin for Halloween. I've seen little hearts and you can buy that tubed up. So I thought, I bet I could do this. Yeah. Um, and I saw someone else create this. So this wasn't, you know, my brilliant brainchild. Um, the design they saw they were doing on TikTok was a little frog, which I think would have been way simpler to start with because it's just circles that they used. Um, I decided to just free design uh, a pony. So I made a pink and blue and purple pony cookie um, using a similar technique that you would kind of roll little shapes and press all the shapes together and then when you cut the tube, you would get a picture. I cannot believe it worked. Um, I will upload the pictures and the progress to Instagram. Um, you can actually hear when I cut into the tube and the picture turns out, I literally gasp. I fully expected this to be a fail and they turned out really cute. Yeah, no, they're really great. Uh, and they taste really good too. I mean, they're just, you know, regular old sugar cookies, but they're pretty delicious. And the, uh, yeah, the pony turned out really, really cute. Yeah. Um, so I used just the first sugar cookie recipe I could find um, online. And then I added a tablespoon of lemon and a couple drops of almond extract just to give it a little something else. 
And I added an, a little bit of extra flour to make it, to just help it with shaping it. Um, I think if you're making regular cookies, stick with the ratios they give you in the recipe. But if you're trying to make shapes, I really recommend adding a little bit of extra flour just to give you some structure to work with. Um, and chilling your dough is also going to help. So chilling it between working with it will help it keep its shape and be kind of pliable. And this I really I did a little doodle on a napkin to see how I wanted the horse to look. And then I sort of freehanded the whole thing just thinking through I, I feel like math comes into this. And I'm sure if I had planned it more thoroughly, I could give you more detail on how this worked. But I really just played with it and tried to visualize what I want, what I wanted the end product to be. I think if you're nervous about trying something like this, I would use a template and there are going to be tons online. I think TikTok is really a great resource. But if you're not on TikTok, uh, you can probably find a tutorial on YouTube. Uh, you can look at what I did and feel free to steal my design. I would totally do this again, especially if it were for like a kid's birthday party or a special event. It was in the end, I think, worth the effort of figuring out how to do this because a single roll of dough ended up giving us about 30 cookies. So I think it's great for a party and I'll include some templates of designs that I think would be easier on our Instagram. Okay, um, and if you start to fail, just make tie-dye cookies. So I used all my scraps and all the scraps of dough to make some really cute little pastel marbled cookies that, that we ate. And they were great. So yeah, I say give it a shot. I think it was worth it. It was. And they were, they were phenomenal. I took some to my work and people loved them. So yeah, they were great. All right. So we're going to dive into now the world of QAnon, the far right, and bronies all meeting up on 4chan. Yeah. We're here with Dr. Zach Palmer at Texas A&M at Commerce. Yeah, Texas A&M Commerce. Yeah. Okay. And we're here to talk about my favorite topic, and hopefully soon to be yours, bronies and QAnon. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think more and more people are aware of QAnon, but could you tell us what bronies are? Yeah. So um, bronies are adult fans of My Little Pony, uh, generally men. So the idea is bro and pony. And um, as a subculture, they really reached their peak around 2015. So if you were really on the internet, or actually if you weren't terribly on the internet, but you walked into a Hot Topic or a Target or <laughs> any kind of place like that, you probably were familiar with them. So really from 2011 to 2016, that, that's really where you're seeing a lot of uh, activity. Yeah, so I, I guess the, the question that, that orients this discussion is what do bronies and QAnon have in common? And the answer is surprisingly more than you would think. Well, you would think none, right? Except maybe that it's a lot of adult men and I would guess mostly white men. Yeah, so it's mostly white straight men. Um, there's of course, and kind of as you, I listened to your episode where you have discussed QAnon before. And, you know, there are surprisingly a lot of people who are involved with QAnon and who are involved with bronies that were um, non-white, 
But if we're looking, if we're zooming out and looking at like statistics, yeah, mostly white guys. Extremely online. Yes. I remember this was like a 4chan thing for a little bit. Yeah. So that's actually what really connects the two. So I want to be clear. I'm not saying that bronies and, and QAnon are the same people. They're not, one didn't cause the other or anything like that, but both began on 4chan. And I think that that's relevant because uh, 4chan is a very specific place to have <laughs> to have anything come out of it. I don't know if how on 4chan or how aware of 4chan you guys are. I spent a lot of my formative internet years on, on B. So uh, I've been extremely online for a very long time. I'm mostly familiar with it uh, through like analyses. So like I don't, I'm not on it, but I've read things about it, right? So I, yeah. I, and I would guess our listeners are probably less familiar. Yeah, so it's an image board. Um, it's a place where memes are born. Um, and I think that that's very relevant for, I, I think we understand that when it comes to Bernie's that it makes sense that many, many, many men who became involved with My Little Pony who really liked it, first started liking it ironically, liking it to make memes of it and everything. Like we get that. Um, how that could then cross over and become something that people genuinely really liked. And that's something that's important to, to keep in mind with Bronies is that while it started more or less as a joke on 4chan, it became something people were very sincerely, they loved and, and watched and really engaged with. And people said it saved their life. Like they were on the verge of suicide and discovered it. There are people who um, it changed everything about them. Um, for my dissertation, I interviewed bronies, um, both men and women. And there were so many stories of people who completely like, I quit my job and I took a different job because of the messages of the show. I mean, really huge, very serious thing that many of the people I interviewed didn't actually get it through 4chan. Um, some people did, but many people discovered it through Facebook, discovered it through friends. And the story of QAnon is actually extremely similar, which is that it started, all evidence points to it starting as a joke on 4chan, that there were a lot of people who would say, I'm this high ranking person in the government, here's you know something ridiculous that's going on. And it, it was known to be a joke, right? Um, there's a lot of ironic kind of stuff on 4chan, you know, not, it's not where people go to get their very serious <laughs> news. And, uh, it, you know, but if you talk to most people who are involved in QAnon now, I would say very few of them have ever been on 4chan or know anything about it. So it, like My Little Pony, right, Bronies, it moved from 4chan to being the sincere thing that people I think are mostly getting their information about QAnon now from Facebook and Instagram. What I feel like the other maybe similarity is when you when you talk to people about QAnon, a lot of the things they love is is the community and the friendship and and a lot of like spiritual wellness, which I think I'm hearing about in in the brony community. But then you have these kind of weird militant bronies as well. And that kind of have a whole other take on the subculture. Yeah. So in my research, I found basically two major types of bronies. Um, there were there were those who were, 
you know, really liked the messages of the show. Which really, friendship, right? It's like friendship, and friendship, community, stuff. like all of that kind of stuff. They were like sincere, just regular. I mean, like I wouldn't say that they were. You know, the, some of the media was like, "Oh, they're feminist and they're changing everything about gender." I would not go that far. Um, I would say they're just regular people who would like to show about ponies. Um, and for another group of of men, and you know, there's some overlap here. These are you know, it's always hard to categorize people, but for another group of men, it was much more like there were seriously anti-feminist. You know, I interviewed some men and it was like, they didn't say I'm a men's rights activist or I'm alt-right or anything like that, but they would say things like, you know, it's really hard for men, you know, because feminism has destroyed everything about society. <laughs> you know, so they, they would say things like that. Um, and, there were guys that would dress up in complete like military attire and be carrying guns to brony conventions. It's not what you would necessarily expect. So yeah, there's this militant wing. I mean, they weren't, there was no real political message among bronies. Um, you had people from all over the political spectrum. Certainly the men who were carrying guns were not like, and I'm going to storm the, you know, Hasbro or something you know, like I'm gonna or the TV network or, or anything there was no place where that kind of militancy was directed but I think you know there was a relationship uh, not among the conventions or message boards or anything like that but among the people between bronies and like men's rights activism and we know that men's uh, you know there's been research on this that there are many people who went from men's rights to alt-right, uh, incel community to alt-right and to QAnon. Right. It does seem, I don't know, it, it seems like there are way more commonalities than I think I would have expected. Yeah. Well, I think that bronies and the, and the media talked about this. They were really the result of these anxieties about gender around that time and masculinity. I mean, think about what, what happened around that, that time period is you also see the rise of incels, but you also see much more of a discussion of men's rights than in the United States than you would really seen before in, in online. And you can kind of get why that is, because if you think about 2011 to 2016, you see legalization of same-sex marriage, transgender tripping point, tipping point being on Time magazine. You see Hillary Clinton running for president. So there's a lot of different gender related things going on. And so bronies are negotiating this stuff about gender and sexuality. And some are re you know, re-examining masculinity. Some are reasserting men's privilege, but that's what's going on. If you fast forward to now, obviously all this gender stuff is still going on, but you see a lot about race. And I, and I think that QAnon is definitely about gender. It's definitely about, um, you know, these suburban white moms worrying about white kids, white babies, the, the, the white girl getting kidnapped and trafficked. Yeah. Um, little blonde girl, right? We're always worried about that in, in the dominant culture. But it's also about race. I mean, it's about anti-Semitism for sure. But I think, look, if you look at how people discuss QAnon, um, I read somewhere that it was it was a great way for Instagram moms to post about something during the Black Lives Matter stuff. 
that was activacy without having to address Black Lives Matter, you know? So instead of being completely silenced, like, okay, that, you know, that problem is one thing, but shouldn't we be worried about the children? Like that should be our main concern. If people talk about lives mattering, well, babies and children, like their lives, what about them? So, you know, and we see these moral panics around children popping up all the time. Um, so why now? I mean, part of it is, don't look at that, look at this, <laughs> you know? Well, I think we're all stuck at home on the internet now. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it. Uh, and I, I read somewhere that, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that there are social movements happening now because, you know, people are stuck in their homes and there's gonna be bottled up aggression and bottled up, you know, feelings. I guess in this podcast, it's probably not that helpful for me to say, I read somewhere. Yeah. It could have been an academic source. It could have been, you know, like a tweet. We have some good tweets out there. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about this as like negotiating race and gender, because the way that the kind of arena they've chosen is a very safe arena, right? It's these men trying to struggle through what masculinity means and they're chosen kind of space to do that negotiation is one designed for young girls. Yeah, right? for, so children, for children, yeah, for, for very, for pretty young girls. Like we're talking, this is a uh, cartoon for like, uh, I think it's four to 11 year old girls. Right, and in, in the same way, these kind of racial and uh, gender negotiations in QAnon are taking space and in these kind of bizarre hypothetical arenas or in political spaces where there's no real threat to them losing status or, yeah. right? So it, it seems like they're choosing spaces where they can dominate. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think the other thing about QAnon is like, I, I think there's a relationship between, for, for some men, this idea of this is my time to be a hero, mm -hmm. right? I can um, go and rescue people like the guy who went to to the pizza restaurant for Pizzagate you know that that guy was like I'm gonna go rescue children uh, you know this is my hero's journey and uh I think it, it's interesting because I used to look at masculinity and preppers oh sure and yet we had a pandemic which is what a lot of preppers were afraid of and uh, many of those same people are like focused on QAnon instead of focused on like, you know, hoarding masks, <laughs> you know, or, or staying inside, you know. Some, so it's, it's very, very interesting. And I think reveals the fact that the, the prepping was always about the opportunity to be a hero rather than real anxieties about, you know, what if the world falls apart? Because it's like, it's only fun if the world falls apart and you're the only one with supplies and you get to go around and, and uh, you know, be, be the big shot who, who suddenly the, your gun collection makes sense. And that, so QAnon provides that space, you know, instead of being about the end of the world, it's about, you know, actually the, 
the government is really out to traffic kids and Democrats are a problem. And certainly this is also an excuse for this partisanship. If instead of saying, oh, you know, Democrats are bad because they believe something different than me, it's like Democrats are bad and they actually literally are doing satanic rituals. Right, they're literally murdering children, yeah. Yeah, and, and I live in Texas, obviously, and, and so this idea that, you know, people involved in QAnon are your neighbors is not hypothetical to me. Um, there's a sign in my neighborhood of, we are the storm, which is a QAnon uh, yeah. saying, and, and there were people in, in my town that would go out and do protests on the bridge. There's this like bridge over this overpass um, and they were there every Saturday. Um, and there was a mix of people who were, Trump won the election and people who were like, save the children. Well, it is, I mean, it is just to kind of circle back. It's this like zero stakes sort of thing, right? Where you can feel really cool. Cause I remember one of the things that the QAnon people were doing for a while was the, uh, the digital soldier. Hmm. Like you took a, you took an oath to be yeah. a digital soldier, which just meant you were going to keep posting, right? Like that's all that, that that meant, but you get to put on the track and you, and you know, I swore an oath to never shut up about this. And, uh, but there's no, you know, they're not actual soldiers, right? Like they're not going to war. Yeah. You know, none of these people are like sleeping on floors and like eating MREs to go like rescue the children, right? It's all, it's all trappings. Yeah, and yeah, they, they would say it's very high stakes. And I think that's what's really interesting is that when and we see this again and again, you know, I've studied men's rights activists in, in the US and in India. And, and one of the things that you see is this idea of victimhood, right? And you see this here too is, you know, I'm in the right and I'm being victimized. I'm being silenced. Um, people aren't taking me seriously, all, all of that. And I think a lot of people do feel very, when, when people are against them almost, it makes it stronger. Because of course, if I'm speaking the truth, people don't want to hear the truth. And that makes it very seductive. Well, I wonder how much of this is about the feeling of moral superiority. Because yeah, I was thinking about- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, I was thinking about what you said about the, the doomsday preppers is the ones that I know of are all anti-mask and anti-vaccine. So it's like this idea of you want to prepare for the end of the world, but then when it comes to actually doing the small tasks, you're not interested in those things. Yeah. And it makes me wonder how much of this is a response. At least I know of um, kind of a section of like, new wave and new age people who are into QAnon, but also a lot of really hardcore evangelical Christians I know of are, are in it, into this. And I wonder if it's like a social backlash to, you know, transphobia and homophobia and racism are now seen as kind of social evils, right? So their worldview is being uh, kind of, yeah, denounced. And so now where are they going to get that feeling of, no, 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 we're actually morally superior. Yeah. Well, I'm actually surprised. I mean, I don't know, maybe you've seen this. Have you seen people using Save the Children to also talk about children being, uh, trans children being allowed to have hormones and things like that? Yeah. Hormone blockers. Yeah. Because I could definitely see that connection too. It, uh, um, it, it kind of took out, the, the UK is, is a hellhole as, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Uh, for this sort of thing, so and that there's currently a um, some of that, yeah, a, a push um, among the the I'll say the like J.K. Rowling types in England yeah. 
to push back against the idea that the NHS should give medical care to trans children yeah. um, <laughs> using a lot of similar verbiage. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are kids, uh, it, it's just interesting because there are so many issues facing children. Even like, if you think about like queer children, like being homeless and, and all of these things, there's a great new book out about that, uh, queer homelessness. Um, and, you know, all these issues and it's like, we're gonna zone in on this one. We're worried that trans kids might not, you know, uh, suffer as much in puberty. <laughs> so. well, I want to, um, I'm, I'm interested to take it back to, to bronies just a little bit because there's something that it, it had sort of occurred to me, which is from what I remember in my 4chan days, there's a lot of people, it was sort of a community of depressives, right? Mm -hmm. like when you yeah. talk about bronies, like, you know, who are days away from suicide or whatever. I, I mean, that was a lot of that board was people posting about how they, you know, didn't have girlfriends, didn't have jobs, you know, didn't finish their college degree, whatever. But it was people from largely presented from like privileged backgrounds who just weren't succeeding as much as they thought they were supposed to, right? I mean, is that, uh, and so I guess my question, is that a common thread in, in bronyism? Uh, because I think it may also be in, in QAnon stuff, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So you saw a lot of people. So what's interesting is you saw people kind of on both sides of these two categories that I was talking about who are like that. So you had people who were like, I was so depressed. And then, you know, My Little Pony made me feel better. And the community made me feel better. And suddenly people were asking about me. And I think that the, for those people, essentially masculinity, the rules of masculinity are you're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to share your problems. You're not supposed to, you know, emote. And this was a space with slightly more flexible rules around masculinity. So you can emote. You can... Um, cry, you can talk about your feelings, and that's accepted. And actually, you can have these, these friendships, right? Because we don't actually, adult men usually don't have these kinds of emotional friendships or, or are discouraged from having these emotional friendships. Right. But for them, that, that was a big part of it. For the other guys that are more militant, I think it was more... I already think of myself as a victim. I have all these anxieties about masculinity and I am going to try to dominate this space because then I will feel better. So I think that's where QAnon, QAnon does not give men the more flexible masculinity of bronies, but it certainly gives them this, I'm under attack. And so I can kind of puff up and feel better about myself as a defense mechanism. Um, and certainly there's this idea that, you know, privileged people who feel like they are not making it as much as they want to are going to seek out a space where they can, where their privilege can be uh, celebrated more or, or felt more. Well, it's interesting because so um, Ron Watkins, who may be Hugh, but certainly like hosted a tune and, and all that yeah. stuff. Um, his final post on like the Acun message board was basically this like, well, we have to accept the results of the election. It's not what we like, but you know, the real, the real thing was the friends and family we made along the way, right? Like that was literally his like outgoing message was, yeah, you know, <laughs> just think about the community that we have here. And, and that's, I don't know, that's kind of interesting to me in that same vein, um, because a lot of these people did also lose a lot of 
offline friends and family, right? I mean, there's, you know, the Q message boards are full of people who are like, well, my, you know, my sister doesn't talk to me anymore. My kids won't return my calls. You know, my wife and I are getting a divorce, but. Or I've been picked up by the FBI. <laughs> right, or I made a trip to Washington in early January and now the FBI sent my door. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, that's just interesting to me, the way, you know, people have talked about this as a cult, the way people are, are substituting their online few friendships for the like in real life connections that they've lost. Well, I think it's cognitive dissonance too, because the more you lose, the more you double down. Because uh, surely I didn't believe this thing and lose all these friends and family because of it, if it was dumb, right? That must mean that there's something to it to justify that I did all of this. So I think that's why um, we're not going to see this dissipate anytime soon, even though Q is is not going to be posting. Although the the problem with these anonymous boards is that anybody can say they're anybody, and so if you think about like Reddit, um, if someone posts something on Reddit, you can click on their username and see everything that they've ever posted, um, and you can see when they joined. So yeah, you can create a throwaway, but people will know it's a throwaway. That's not how it works on places like 4chan and Acoon. Like you can create a, a an account that says that your queue and they can't click on it and see that you just created it and that you're not the same person as this person. But people have tracked down IP addresses or something and led to that, the own, he was the owner of, of 8chan, right? Yeah, so well, so in, in um, not on 4chan, but on, on I think 8chan and then later 8chan, there, there is actually um, the, the administrators of the board, Ron Watkins and company, created a little a posting code, essentially, that guarantees you that this is the, uh, you know, if you see these digits, it's the original Q, yeah. which was one of the, the funniest and dumbest scandals involved in this whole thing, which is that uh, Ron Watkins almost certainly stole the original Q account from yeah. the person who was first posting it, which is very funny to me. But, you know, so, but right, I mean, because to your, to your earlier point, I think it was, uh, it came from something awful, the book is where I first learned this, that this was a pretty common trope around yeah. 2017, that, you know, people pretending on 4chan, I'm, you know, the undersecretary of defense for nuclear war, and we're going to blow up Tehran next week. And for whatever reason, like out of the 50 people who tried that, this is the one that just stuck. Well, I think two things. One, I think that it's really interesting because in the Trump administration, it actually would not have been that surprising if a official <laughs> decided, <laughs> decided to probably wasn't after 4chan. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, it wouldn't have been 4chan, it would have been like Twitter or, you know, something like that. But, but for someone high up in the government, because they had just like randos in the government, like it wouldn't have been that surprising for someone to leak things. So I, I think that's probably why you saw that trope at the time. But the fact that people latched onto it, I think it's also the kind of thing that just feels creepy. Like it, it tells a story that I think, especially a you know around Epstein, uh, you know, coming out at that time, that you go, okay, well, sex trafficking is on our minds. This is not a typical case of sex trafficking by any stretch of the imagination. You can easily link Epstein to so many people that suddenly you start to think it's a conspiracy when really it's probably not, you know, I, it's, it's really a case of 
one awful person who kind of weaseled his way in, into power. But there are, I think, you know, when stuff came out about uh, high-ranking pedophiles in the BBC, what, quite a few years ago, I think that gets every so often people think, okay, that was caught. That must mean it's even more widespread than, than even, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. People don't want to believe that. I don't know why people don't want to believe that there's just like some bad people out there. They want to believe it's organized. It reminds me way back when of some of like Freud's early work and like early psychology, when they came up with some very convoluted theories about, the origins of hysteria because someone suggested, and I think Freud suggested early on that it was the symptom of abuse, of sexual abuse and physical abuse, but because high, you know, high level women were suffering from it and the only people with access to high level women were high level men, they decided that that theory had to be wrong. And so clearly it's that women are just, you know, sick with the moon. Right, but I, I think there's a resistance to believing that it could happen to your child and it could happen because of someone you know, someone you brought into your child's life because most sexual abuse happens from relatives. Well, and if you look at, at Epstein's victims, many of them were teenage girls who were kind of lost in a way, right? And that's who predators prey upon. They don't go to a park and find children and just grab them, yeah. right? They, they look for, for young women who have been kicked out of their houses or who, you know, are struggling to make money and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, because if you pull up to a random person at the park and say like, hey, do you want $15? They're going to be like, who are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a lot more grooming that is typically involved. And so it usually is like a friend of the family or, you know, a a relative or or something like that. And we certainly don't, I mean, when we think about kidnapping or or sex trafficking or anything, we don't think about that at all. You know, and and as as you know, because you've studied intimate partner violence and everything, often it is partners that are trafficking, you know, boyfriends trafficking their, their, their girlfriends. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's a lot of abuse. It's a lot of teens. And I think that's what's so frustrating to me because there's very little sympathy extended to teens who are still children legally um, who get sucked into this. And there's some blurred, you know, a lot of it's coercion and people are very judgmental about coercion, you know, and and it's it's just really frustrating because when we spin these really outlandish tales, the people who suffer are the the real victims whose circumstances don't look anything like the conspiracy. Well, it's just so interesting that there is this narrative of save the children, but there's not a lot of belief for victims when they come forward. Yeah. Um, You know, it's especially if a story can be told about how they were wearing something or had sex before that or, or anything like that. So it's ridiculous because it really is, it is trying to find these ideal victims. Um, and you see a lot of people talking about sex trafficking fears, I think right now too. I don't know if this is unique to where I live. I assume it isn't, but I, I'm on a community kind of Facebook group and I can't tell you how many times people will post things like I was in Walmart and this guy was following me around. I was almost sex trafficked. Oh yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's, com- that's really common. Yeah, I saw this man. 
Yeah. Well, someone posted, someone recently that I, so I was part of a martial arts gym and one of the men posted about how this man ran up behind him and when he turned around really fast, the man got in his car and drove away. And he's like, you know, and that just goes to show you, like if I hadn't been situationally aware, who knows what would happen? And I'm like, I think I missed a part of this story because it sounds like it was cold out and a man ran to his car and you got really spooked by that. Like, I don't understand where the threat was in this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's I don't know, and not to just throw out more things this could be related to, but I feel like there's gotta be some relationship between this increased fear and the popularity of like murder podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I was talking about this with my mom and she's a big fan of Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered. This is yeah. a podcast. And uh, she was talking about how like, it's really important for, for women to learn, like not, you know, not to be polite, not to go with, with uh, um, an abductor just because it's like awkward not to, which I guess is uh, according to the show, very common. And it's like in talking about all of what you should do to avoid getting murdered or, or whatever, it's like, you know, that being murdered is very uncommon, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, it's very rare. Well, it is, it's never happened to me. Um, yeah. I mean, it happens. It absolutely, like sex trafficking happens. Um, kids do get kidnapped. I mean, I remember the Elizabeth Smart case uh, when I was, I don't know, it was early 2000s. Um, you know, I mean, she was kidnapped by a stranger uh, from her bedroom window. And, uh, you know, these things do happen, but they're so rare and if you think about what you're going to, to put a social movement together about, it seems like a very odd thing to have a movement about because first, who are you petitioning? Right. Uh, second, everyone agrees with you that sex trafficking is bad. Well, and also, I mean, I feel like there's a really, like there's a gender and there's a racial element, especially to the popularity of these true crime podcasts. And I think you actually said this to me but I'm going to say it on the podcast and get credit, huh. is it frames crime and the fear around crime by centering like wealthy and middle-class white women, yeah. right? Like all of these measures and protections they want are to protect some hypothetical young white woman. And the, the result of a lot of the, the calls that especially that podcast put out are, are things that harm mostly black men and, and men of color. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, you think about like, uh, so children of, so black children are actually like statistically more likely to be the victim of a crime than white children, right? Yeah, there's a sense, I think in society in general, there it's, there's a very skewed sense of who's in danger. I live in a neighborhood in a small suburb of Dallas. And I think you know, statistically, there's a very low crime rate here. Yet in our neighborhood Facebook group, people are constantly, constantly talking about crime. I mean, to the point where you get the sense from what people are talking about that, like, you leave your garage door open, people are going to come out and steal all your appliances. It just is so strange to me. And certainly, I can see where if you're consuming this kind of media, you would feel like, Every day, kids are being stolen from their bedroom window and trafficked. Right. 
from the Walmart parking lot. Well, I mean, it's it's absurd, right? For it to be a conspiracy, I mean, like most conspiracies, for it, for it to actually be working on the level that these people think, there'd be so many people would have to be staying silent for no discernible reason, right? Like Nancy Pelosi isn't herself kidnapping these children to eat their, you know, pituitary gland or whatever, right? So there's some guy doing that, right? And like, it's like, it's like Bush doing 9-11. Like not all these people would stay silent for this long, surely. No. And the case of, of Epstein, of Harvey Weinstein, right? It wasn't a secret. They were doing these things Pretty right. boldly and out in the open, yeah. but Absolutely. people just don't care. Right. I mean, Donald Trump, his yeah. damn self has the, the quote about yeah. Epstein, like he likes women on the younger side, like me, right? Like people know. Yeah. There's, there's always, it's an open secret. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I think the other thing is this low, under, very little understanding of how science and government work. Yeah. Because uh, there isn't any youth serum that you can grind up from children's pituitary glands but i did see that that's a uh, a belief uh i i don't think that uh e- even democrats don't get along with each other a lot of them so it's like they're not covering each other and this idea of this deep state i i don't know it's it's certainly bizarre uh and anyone who's been really close to government knows that they're not like great at keeping secrets <laughs> so. not the most put together bunch oh sorry i was gonna say i think you said uh adrenochrome which is allegedly the the yeah. secret youth serum is something we've been able to cheaply artificially produce yeah. for yeah. decades Whatever. yeah yeah, yeah you so, can make it right like it doesn't it, it's actually incredibly inconvenient to try to harvest it from human beings it's, it would certainly be the long way yeah, yeah. Well, this is certainly, I mean, the idea that people are kidnapping children and, and ritually killing them, too, is very uh, medieval fears of Jews. Yeah. I'm not an expert on that, but uh, certainly this, like, blood libel kind of thing. Oh, for sure, yeah. Well, and George Soros is behind it. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, uh, also, I had not heard of George Soros until, like, 2016. Same. Like just absolutely not, you know, where did this come from? (laughs) I think the first time I heard him mentioned was maybe during, maybe during Occupy or in reference to Occupy that he was somehow behind Occupy. That's true. I probably heard of him before that because I'm sure that there was something like he was funding Black Lives Matter in 2013 or something, but I, I just don't remember. But yeah, it's, uh, because well, he 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 runs moveon.org is his thing, which used oh. which used to be um, in I guess the pre-Bernie days, like as left as the Democratic Party got. Yeah, yeah um, I remember MoveOn. MoveOn was a big supporter of Obama. So. Yeah, okay. yes, yeah. He was one of the first people to buy into the Obama campaign, but dumped a bunch of money in 08 and drove into Obama primary and Hillary. That was his like, I guess that's when he got the tendrils in. Because then a lot of the Obama conspiracy theories and the oh Soros conspiracy theories kind of merged into this yeah. gross morass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, there's a lot going on. I feel like there's almost too much, and, and it's all related. Every week we're seeing something that is 
uh, unique expression of our times, like this stuff happening with the stock market, you know, is a very unique expression of our times. And I think QAnon is as well. And it's things that have happened before, you know, QAnon is not at all different. Like they didn't come up with something that was like, wow, no one's ever thought of that. Yeah, but the expression of it is unique and, and very much suited to our times and the anxieties that are going on right now. Wow, it's just, I think that whoever first was Q probably didn't even realize what they were tapping into. But yeah, I, wow. It makes me think of when you first described your dissertation project to me, I remember thinking that's like one of the wildest things I've ever heard. And if you told me today about it, I'd be like, well, yeah, that's just Tuesday. Right. Yeah, and a lot of people really, um, when, I, when I first proposed this as my dissertation, and I think still today, I thought like, okay, what's the point of studying bronies? Like that doesn't tell us anything that's uh, related to anything else because it's so unique. I mean, how often do adult men get really into a cartoon? And when I was trying to justify the study, a lot of times I would try to think of other similar things like, well, what if men got really into like, Twilight or what if men got really into Frozen or, or something like that, like thinking about those things. But that's not really what my dissertation tells us about. It doesn't really, the media aspect of it is there, absolutely. But I think the story of how men make sense of anxieties about masculinity in this way is, it's much more relevant to studies of men's rights movements in the alt-right than it is, you know, cartoons. Well, I want to, uh, I want to ask you to, to kind of follow up. So, so these are probably largely like college educated people, right? Somewhat. Um, you know, actually it was really interesting. You get a lot of college students and you get a lot of people who have some college, but did not graduate. So we're actually not talking about the most privileged men, right? We're not talking about, there were a couple like lawyers and, and, people with a lot of education and, you know, it, it kind of ran the, the whole gamut of, of people. But I would say probably the majority had some college. Well, I, I asked that because just an, another, I guess, comparison to QAnon. So the, the Democratic uh, Congressional Committee put out something today, you know, they're going to spend the next two years making the Republican Party the QAnon party. And um, I think Patrick Mahomey is his name, the chair, the new chair of the DCCC, said the Republican Party can be the party of QAnon or it can be the party of college education, but it can't be both. Mm. Oh, it definitely can be both. Yeah, yeah. And and it definitely can be both. Because like these aren't, yeah, these, like these aren't. Uh, no, it's uh, people uh, largely. Yeah, the QAnoners that I know are are all college educated or some college. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this idea that uh, it's the same idea of Trump supporters being uh, uneducated when we didn't really see that, all these different things. I mean, my if you just watch the media and you don't live in a Trump supporting area, I can see where you would get that idea. But anyone who's been to a Trump supporting area knows that it's not just one type of person who lives in that area. I mean, we really live in a divided society where um, I would say in the suburb I live in, it's probably, it went like 70% for Trump and that's doctors, lawyers, librarians, like that's all sorts of different types of people, uh, as well as 
you know, janitors and, and fast food workers. It, it, it's everybody. They, you know, I have college students uh, who have these kinds of beliefs, you know, and they're otherwise very intelligent students. It's just what you get at home. Right. Well, I think, I think it's a bad idea to equate intelligence with morality. Or yeah. certainly formal education. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely interesting. I, I really think that uh, we are seeing the Republican Party morph into the party of QAnon without Democrats even trying to cast them that way. I mean, the, uh, recently, the uh, Texas GOP released a We Are the Storm kind of thing. So yeah, it, it, you love to see that, don't you? I mean, Alan West has been a, um, a very radical person for a while. I was shocked because he used to be from Florida. He was a congressman from Florida. So I'm shocked to see he popped back up again. He yeah. was sort of one of the worst offenders of the Bush years. And then when I saw the, the We Are the Storm stuff, I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. That guy's back. So. Yeah, such an unusual. <laughs> and uh, I don't even know how to make sense of it. So I'm, I'm studying parlor and everything. I'm trying, I'm trying to, to start, you know, looking into all of that. And one of the most interesting things, and I think this is related to everything we're talking about, is that if you look at men's rights on Parler, you don't get hardly anything at all. Very, very little, because that's not the focus, right? There is a lot of misogyny and there is a lot about gender, but it's just not being directed in that direction anymore. Not as much. Do you think it's because so many white women voted for Trump that they feel like they can ease up on, on women now? No, there's still, no, no, <laughs> no, because what you see is you get a lot of misogynistic stuff about Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton. So one of the things about Parler that makes it very difficult to like index things is that people use like 50 hashtags for every post. And so like men's rights will bring up things that have like nothing to do with men's rights, but have a lot to do with hating Nancy Pelosi. So there's a lot of misogyny there but it's uh, uh, much more directed. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the, the language about, around rights being much less uh, salient right now in our discussions. Um, we don't see as much about rights in general from the left or the right right now, right? We see much more of Black Lives Matter, which is not using the language of rights as much as the uh, inherent dignity and worth of human life. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah. something I notice in my work because I look at legal framing and how people talk about rights and I yeah, can confirm. Yeah, and so if the right is, if, if we look at men's rights as a reactionary movement, if they don't have a rights frame to react against, they're not going to use a rights frame. And so I think that's why you see men's rights, many of those same people moving into the alt-right, which is not, it's reactionary against different things than, so it's feminism is not being labeled the main issue anymore, it's Democrats. Um, Sounds great, they should uh, renew My Little Pony for another season and get these guys back in, <laughs> into that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same people, but certainly it's the same starting point, right, 4chan. And I think that, so there's a lot of in common, this nerd masculinity and everything. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm really curious what will happen in the Biden years, right? 
um, because we've moved into a new political era. Uh, so far, nothing's changed, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. You know, now that Trump isn't on Twitter, people are now moving into this completely new uh, social media landscape that's going to be divided, uh, not by algorithms, but by actual platforms. We'll see how this, what happens with all of this. I think that um, we're due for another thing. Like I think that QAnon isn't going to go away, but I think we're due for another expression that's going to be uniquely tailored to the moment of Biden being in power. Well, can't wait for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Anything, anything given you hope lately? Anything exciting? Um, <laughs> to end on a high note. Well, I mean, this stuff is interesting. And so that is, it's a perverse kind of excitement to, to be like, what's going on here? This is weird. Uh, although it's scary, you don't want to study these sorts of things because you don't want the people who are part of it to hear that you're studying it and, and attack you. I mean, that's a real fear now. Nothing, I, I, I never feared anything working on bronies because they're, they weren't mean, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but yeah, I, I would say one thing that is giving me hope is I do think that the deplatforming is working. I mean, if you were on Twitter pre and post, I mean, it was like a switch flip. I mean, it was immediately better, <laughs> a better space. I don't think everything's going to get better, you know, because I, I don't think Trump is the real problem. I think he's a symptom of a larger problem. But certainly that showed us, wow, deplatforming is that that works. So that's I guess that's a, a piece of hope. And I think there's some great people who are doing great things in society right now, too. I mean, we focus a lot on the negative because we have to. But look, a ton of people got together and invented a vaccine you know a ton of people have great people are working for the biden administration you know great people are constantly doing the good work all the time so that that is something that is is hopeful but yeah i mean there's look we've been it's almost a year of a pandemic it's hard to find hopeful <laughs> yeah. oh, well how can people find you uh where can they find your work or uh, do you have social media you want to plug yeah, I mean, I tweet at Zach D. Palmer, and I, I don't really tweet a whole, yeah, Zach D. Palmer, Z-A-K-D Palmer, and uh, I don't tweet a whole lot about all of these things that I said. I mostly tweet about my two-year-old, And uh, but if you look, you can, you can also find my work on uh, academia.edu, but uh, the, the stuff on Bronies is, is not out yet. It will be out probably this summer. So. Yay, I'm excited. And I, yeah. wish, I, I wish you would do a full book because some of the images you have from that data collection are absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah. It's so I, I made a Shutterfly album of all the pictures I took because I actually I ended up going to like seven Brony conventions. I mean, I, I went to a lot and I took over a thousand pictures. I did organize them into a book and I, I like I don't know where that would be. <laughs> If anyone would want to see that, but there's some fascinating, fascinating stuff. And uh, there are so many things that I've got two articles about this that hopefully will be coming out soon. And um, you can't capture everything in an article. And there's so many things that like academics don't find interesting, but regular people. (laughs) But yeah, and and I'm hoping that work, my work about parlay and stuff will, will, or 
It's a parlor. Sorry. I want to say parlay because that makes sense to me. I took French in high school, but it's parlor. Uh, hopefully my work on parlor will, will uh, come out eventually. But, you know, these things take like a billion years. So it's like, hey, you said some interesting stuff. Where can we find more about it? It's like, I don't know. Check back 10 years from now. <laughs> well, now you'll have a podcast to point. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I, I probably should tweet more about my thoughts, but I, I think I'm the reverse of uh, most people on Twitter because I'm like, eh, you know, I, I don't really have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's never true. Everyone, the democratization of thought. Yeah, well, I guess. But yeah, I, I also think like, honestly, there's so many people saying so many fascinating things about this. I mean, Really, there's great work about anti-vaxxers and how this relates to how people are responding to the pandemic. And you know, there's an overlap between anti-vaxxers and QAnon. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and how anti-vaxxers are becoming uh, increasingly right-wing too. We have the stereotype that anti-vaxxers are left-wing, but not. And so there's great work on that. There's great work on, you know, political polarization on, you know, hate crimes. I mean, there's so much great work going on. So it's, uh, I think everybody has something to say about this moment, but man, there's some people saying some really fascinating stuff. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. very, I wanted to say fun. I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but that was fascinating. Um, so I appreciate your time.